Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast as Selection Sunday draws to a close the week of Monday, November 12th, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com. Tickets for Stag Bowl 40 on December 14th at 7 p.m. And of course, we do, Keith, that... Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to get at least a bit of a new look to the Stag Bowl this year. And now we have a little bit of an idea of what might be awaiting if it's Mountain Union and if it's not, uh, who might be on either side of the bracket because we have our 32-team bracket with 16 teams on each side. And, you know, people have probably gotten tired of hearing my uh, take on the brackets through Twitter and through the D3Football.com front page and on uh, D3Boards.com, our message board. And... I'm uh, eager here at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning on the East Coast to hear your take. Well, yeah, by virtue of me having a NFL-related job, it means I had to spend part of my Sundays, uh, Sunday today not paying attention to Selection Sunday, which is sort of um, kind of runs opposite to what, what everything that's pumping through your blood on but this day. But it was day a before. great day for Fred Jackson. And it was a great Thursday for Cecil Shorts, if we're going there. But there um, so many... Thoughts go through the mind on this day. It, this is really one of the, the most fun days of the year in D3 because there's so much build up to it. And then, you know, six o'clock comes and goes and there is there are the highs for some teams and lows for other teams. And, and I mean, if I'm going to start, you know, my first impression of the bracket is uh, the six of the at large teams I really like. I really thought they deserved to get in. And I thought the committee nailed um, you know, a good mix of taking the one loss teams and taking the two loss teams that had played the tough schedules. I think today was a pretty big victory for strength of schedule when you consider you know, Pacific Lutheran 7-2 and two, but losses to Linfield and Cal Lutheran. But at the same time, they didn't go overboard in rewarding Pacific Lutheran, for example. They still have to beat Linfield or Cal Lutheran to get out of that foursome. Uh, same deal with, with Louisiana College. I didn't have a problem with, with the rematch. I'm glad they got in. They played Wesley. They played uh, Mary Harden Baylor, but to get to the Stag Bowl, they had to go through Wesley or Mary Harden Baylor. So they they would have to avenge those losses, and uh, they they got the opportunity to do so. So those are some uh, initial impressions that uh, that jumped off the page. Obviously, the uh, the Bridgewater State selection as what I would assume the last team in um, was a little bit surprising um, for a few reasons. You know, last week I think I was one of the first people who was bringing up the fact that maybe Bridgewater State could skate through. By not having to play in the in the uh, NFC title game, they're guaranteed not to lose. They're guaranteed to be nine and one. Whereas you know the loser of that game is nine and two. And if that game, if Framingham State won the game, Framingham State had the head to head result with Bridgewater State that uh, Bridgewater State could could you know kind of back in to the uh, to the playoffs by virtue of having this good resume, and then also by virtue of the East Region having uh, you know four NFC teams ranked. And uh, that that's sort of what ended up happening, but. What we didn't know at the time, you know, we were speculating this about 10 days ago, is we didn't know what the rest of the board would be like. And, you know, with Waynesburg dropping into that group, a team that was 9-0 and heading into Saturday, and, um, you know, 48 hours later, their, their season evaporates. Ohio Westland being in that group, a team that had a chance on Saturday to, to win the North Coast um, automatic qualifier and then their season over and then some other pretty solid uh you know two lost teams in Wheaton and Wabash but I think the team that that jumps out for me was the team you projected Pat in the uh as the seventh um pool C team in 
the uh, Concordia Moorhead. And, and the, you know, the real disappointing thing about that is they basically had Bethel beat and lost the game on the last play. And, uh, you know, had another opportunity later in the season to beat St. Thomas and still get in the playoffs. But nobody beat St. Thomas this year. So, you know, it's hard to knock them for that. Uh, they played them kind of close in, in 21-7. And then basically what happened is um, that, that play at the end of the game cost Concordia Moorhead a playoff bid. And for those who didn't uh, see it when it came out uh, several weeks ago, of course, the play was a, uh, a fumble that Concordia Moorhead uh, scooped up and started running down the field with, except that uh, Concordia Moorhead sideline started uh, running onto the field and celebrating when the, as, as soon as the ball came loose. And they were called for a, a defensive penalty, and Bethel, with uh, given second life, not only scored a touchdown, but got the two-point conversion to uh, win that game. And that's the reason. That they're in the playoffs and uh, and, uh, and 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 Concordia Moorhead is not. Um, we're going to refer several times, I'm sure, over the course of this podcast to uh, the interview that uh, I did with Brad Bankston, who is the national committee chair. He's the commissioner of the Old Dominion Athletic Conference. Um, that is a that is an interview worth listening to. Uh, we wouldn't put it out there if it weren't worth listening to. I would hope, but this is definitely one that's worth listening to because um, you know, first of all, I, I think you know. Keith, you and I have both known Brad for a long, long time. Uh, yep. For me, it goes back to about '95, um, and he's he's been he's he was I thought he was very candid. I thought he you know he uh, rather than just spouting the NCAA party line, which we've certainly heard many many times over the past 14 years, uh, he took time to you know give some real thoughtful answers and and uh, really kind of you know be pretty honest about the way things are done. And uh, it is definitely worth listening to um, because we talk about all sorts of things in that uh, in that interview. And if if you're subscribed to the podcast, you should already have received it. If you receive this one, it's also on the front page right now on D3Football.com. Uh, you more or less can't miss it, and you really shouldn't because uh, you can find out quite a bit about how the how the process uh, is put together. But basically, one of the things, one of the many things he said, as I. Uh, circle back to the original point was that the committee was very very well aware of how that game went down but unfortunately the way it stands on the field is the way it stands in the selection criteria as well yeah and and you know to a degree uh, the selection committee has to have some kind of subjectivity an ability to take all the numbers and interpret them for what they really mean but at the same time when you get too subjective you start being unfair to the teams that really have earned their way in. In other words, for, for maybe a Bridgewater State, a team that, that's 9-1, and one, you know, has done everything they do uh, you know, to, to play with a schedule that's in front of them except beat Framingham State. And you know, there are other 9-1 and one teams out there that can make the same argument, but do you put a team in the field that does that? You can't justify with the numbers, right? Like Wisconsin-Platteville, for example. You can't even get them to the board uh, ahead of Concordia-Moorhead. But you know in your heart you know, Platteville would, would, would beat Bridgewater State nine times out of ten if they played. So, you know, how much bending of the numbers do we do we need to have? And, uh, you know, how much su- subjectivity in the process? You know, I, I always go back to the example from 1998 when uh, Emory & Henry was 10-0 and and they got left out, and that was under the old system. And, and that's one of the reasons the automatic qualifier system was, was you know, put in. And... Um, I, I just don't want to, you don't want to give the committee too much power, but you have to give them some kind of subjectivity. And I think a lot of people out there today would have liked to seen them have a little bit more, uh, you know, power over that last bid because so many two loss teams that 
earned it by playing tough schedules. Uh, they earned a chance to to keep keep their season going. You know, there were there were a handful of teams out there, maybe thirteen teams with a legitimate claim for seven bids. But at the same time, all these two loss teams wouldn't even be up for discussion in a different season when there was just a stronger pool of nine and one teams. So you know, two loss teams. You you can't complain all that much. You're lucky to even be in the field. If if you got sent, you know, back to your conference rival that's undefeated and one of the top five teams in the country, you know, tough luck. At least you got in. Concordia Moore didn't get in, you know. So uh, some of the complaints, you know, people we got screwed, we got jobs. You know, I I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for that because there's a lot of teams that would much you know much rather be quote unquote screwed and and at least be playing this week. Going back to what you said about about the committee itself, I think what's evident and was really, really strongly evident this season in the run up to the playoffs is that in the past few rotations of of the national committee, first uh, with with Dick Kaiser from Defiance leading the way and Joy Solomon and now with Brad in charge, is that the, the committee's been, first of all, very willing to take advantage of whatever they can do within the rules, the set criteria to make this the best bracket possible. We know we have the constraints, the financial constraints. We know we, we um, have the distance constraints, the geographical, uh, you know, try to keep as few flights possible, keep cluster teams within 500 miles of each other. But within those rules, you know, they've, they've done a nice job of making number one seeds, rewarding, you know, instead of stacking four 10 and 0 West teams in the West and making them all fight it out. You know, you spread them out a little bit and Mount Union, quote unquote, moves to the East and you have a, a more balanced bracket overall. And when you look at this, you know, the top four seeds, uh, there's also a second team in, in three of the four brackets that could really give each of the top seeds trouble, which is what you want to see. You want to see that balanced bracket. But uh, I'm also trying to give credit to the the way the committees over the past several years have been open and transparent with this information so that our fans now, readers, have a, a complete understanding. Not all of them, of course. You know, we get on Twitter and, and, and some, be, some people haven't read any of the links that we sent out. and they don't, they don't understand why our top 25 is not, you know, playoff criteria. But a lot of people out there really understand how that works. And it's gotten to the point in 2012 where, where fans can be on our message board running a, a playoff simulation and nail, you know, f- five of the seven at-large teams or whatever the number was. And I think that's a testament to to some of the things the past few committees have done. There were there was a time when we were very critical of the selection committees. And I think you look today, there's a situation where the committee really couldn't please everybody. And they still did a nice job. Um, you know, not perfect, but but got a bracket that, that a lot of people can be excited about. I mean... A- Brad Bankston almost basically essentially apologizes for these conference rematches. I, I think that as much as, you know, the, the, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth about how these, uh, how these things go down, I think one of the things to remember is that, um, you know, I, Brad and I both heard the same number, that it, it, it costs about $30,000 to charter a flight and put a football team in it and send it from uh, one part of the country to another. And that is not an insignificant number when you think about you know the 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 budget that Division Three is run on, and not to get all into that minutia, but you know those are the sort of things that that, that these people are are looking at. There, these are all football people. You know, there's nobody on this, there's nobody on this committee right now who's you know coming at uh, coming at football as a as a stranger. People all understand how this stuff goes, and they all live this stuff. You know, they. 
they've been through they've been through these things before uh and i don't think there's anybody out there you know trying to screw you yeah i mean i mean i think it's important to remember that these guys are for all intents and purposes on our side you know they they see the same things that we see and and you know we know for a fact they read the site they read the comments that fans post and so they're you know trying to make the best bracket but also you have coaches on the committee who don't want to set a precedent of doing something wrong for a team that could you know come back and affect one of their teams later on down the road and we had a coach on the committee this season uh this is the national committee in terry haran from concordia moorhead you know he was a guy whose team was the most deserving team probably that got left out and um, uh, i certainly wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a, a spirited argument for getting them in and and you know he couldn't participate in that, but to a degree, um, because, you know, you obviously don't want to have a conflict of interest with trying to get your team in. But at the same time, and this is one of the things Brad was saying on the on the um, the uh, interview is that, you know, used to be among the committee that the more impassioned maybe the plea, the more sway one person could have over what the selections are. And now that they've gone to a system where they actually have to cast a vote for each uh, team and. And that's how the team gets in the field rather than just, you know, doing it like jury style where you just agree, you know, talk and talk and talk until everybody agrees. Um, I, I think it, it's a tough job, but it, 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 at least it's in the hands of people who, like you said, are D3 people who are football people and who are, um, I think, have a pretty good grasp for the most part of how this stuff works. You know, there, there were times in the past, you know, we could find, you know, fairly blatant mistakes or, or things that committees had just chosen to overlook in order to get teams in the field and get teams out of the field. And that makes, that's kind of unfair, you know, to the team that gets left out. But I think when in the case of today, they did about as well as you can do with, um, you know, with, with a rough situation. Yeah. And you know, there, there are people who also know how to pronounce Widener and, you know, Delval and St. Olaf and, and that sorts of thing. Like you said, they, they uh, they live and breathe Division three like a like a whole lot of us do. Um, you know, not to tackle every crazy, strange question that people have asked, but you know, for people who don't understand why Christopher Newport at six and four is in the field, uh, I don't understand why people understand the Division one basketball tournament and don't get that the football tournament here in Division three is just like that. We have automatic bids, and sometimes a team around five hundred is going to win an automatic bid. Um, if you if if there are people out there who don't understand that, I almost can't help you. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure that the people who uh, who don't understand that probably aren't even listening to the podcast, to be honest with you. Yeah, I would probably say that's very accurate. Um, you know, it's happened a few times where six and four teams get in. We've had a five and five team get in. But I think the important thing to, to recognize is Christopher Newport got sent to the number, you know, the number one team in the nation, sent to Mount Union. So the the hill is the toughest hill to climb. You come in with the worst, you got to climb the toughest hill. Same thing with the the rest of the field is just two lost teams. There's no other three lost teams in the field. No conferences that that put a team with three losses in. There's a handful though of two lost teams. Some from Pool A who earn their automatic bid. Some um, from from Pool C. And all the two lost teams I'm looking at here. Let me just run this down real quick. Make sure I'm, I'm all on the road. That's what I'm getting at. 
It's the only one that's at home, and they're playing a seven and two. Rowan, Rowan does have one, um, one out of division loss, but that's the only two loss team that that's at home. When you look at this this whole thing, and uh, so so everybody that comes in with losses, right? You, you know how the, the the old argument for Division One was they got to have the the perfect regular season to get to the Sugar Bowl or whatever bowl is the championship that year, um, and and they were saying playoffs would ruin a regular season. Well. Everybody that, that's listened to this podcast knows we had a great regular season. We just had a, a week 11 with all kinds of drama and the drama extended onto Sunday in that we're looking at all these different pool C teams and trying to work the different permutations. Could you imagine the national media trying to deal with pool C and strength to schedule and all that stuff? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it would be it would be nuts. But we have what I think is, a you know, the the best system you can have with. The, the fair access thing. You're not going to put the third, the 32 strongest teams in the field. You know, Platteville would probably beat a handful of teams in the field. Concordia Moorhead would beat a handful of these teams in the field. But you don't know which ones are, are which. So each team has a, a chance to earn respect for its conference. And next year we'll do the conference rankings and, and someone will move up and someone will move down based a lot on what happens these next few weeks. I want to talk about one of the feel-good stories out of Saturday, and that is Washington and Jefferson qualifying for the playoffs and and doing so in pretty emphatic fashion considering all they've been through this year yeah it's a feel bad story in the beginning and that's how it got to be a, a feel good story because uh you know running back tim mcnerney uh was killed near the washington jefferson campus uh during the season and really one of the, the most shocking moments probably in all, all the time we've been doing this you know as we said the week it happened pat you know accidents happen but you don't really see a guy who's beloved on campus get murdered like this, and so it was a um, a, a major blow, and it was it was something because of, in this day and age we have social media, uh, Twitter being the, the main one. You know, we could see the outpouring of emotion and how these players were hurting, and so you have to feel good for them a little bit that that they were able to rally the way into the playoffs. They had a chance in week eleven playing Waynesburg undefeated to, to date, and most years we'd be you know. Deep down, you'd be pulling for the underdog in this game. You want to see Waynesburg get in. Washington Jefferson has been to the playoffs tons of times. They won the President's Athletic Conference tons of times. On, on this particular Saturday, you know, it, it, it was a little, it was heartwarming, to be honest, to see that team get in and, and it just have another week to play together and play to honor their guy. And now they're going to do it on, on a bigger stage where uh, they're, every, they're going to get a little bit more attention. And, uh, and all that attention is going to go towards Tim. And, and in honesty, uh, I think they have a winnable first-round game. I mean, that's the the beautiful thing about this bracket is once you get outside the the you know number one seeds and the tough draws, and and again we dealt with that in that the teams that that play those teams deserve to play the toughest teams. There are a lot of games in the middle of these brackets um, where you could see the underdog winning, the road team winning. Uh, Johns Hopkins is Washington Jefferson's opponent. It's uh, you know it's a trip from Pittsburgh to Baltimore, but at the same time. Uh, or, the, or, you know, Pittsburgh area to Baltimore. Uh, Johns Hopkins showed a little weakness in week 10, uh, losing to Franklin and Marshall 14 12. Uh, Johns Hopkins has been a team that was on a roll, but they were also a team that, that was 10 0 last season, went into the first round of the playoffs and got beat by an 8 2 St. John Fisher team. So, you, you who knows what's going to happen in you know, Washington, Jefferson, Johns Hopkins? You know, there are a few other games like that up and down this bracket Cohen, Elmhurst, Heidelberg, Wittenberg. Um, I, I think. You know, Cal Luther and North Central. These are these are the type of games that are that are possibly toss up games. And uh, 
Adrian Franklin is another one. You, you know, you don't know who's going to win that game. And those, to me, in the first round, those are the fun games. You know, I look back at years past, the, the best games I've been to in the first round are like Otterbein versus Franklin. And, you know, Franklin won 62-45. But, it, you know, it, it was not, they're not just the Mount Unions and Linfields and Mary Hart and Baylor's that attract the most attention in week one. It's going to be a lot of teams that don't get a chance to do this that we're not they're not familiar with. We're going to get to know some new people, some new faces, you know, from Framingham State all the way out to Pacific Lutheran. You know, last year, of course, uh, St. John Fisher went on a run where they won two consecutive road games to get to the round of eight. Um, I don't know if W&J necessarily is uh, a team that could, uh, can fill that spot, but I'm wondering if maybe there are some teams that are, um, you know, for example... You know, it, I I think uh, I think there are a lot of people who probably think Bethel can win their first round game. If they were able to do that, I'm not sure that they could win their second round game. But that's certainly an intriguing matchup. Bethel, Wisconsin, Oshkosh, one of the best teams out of the MIAC against the best team from the WIAC, two of the strongest conferences in the country. That's always a a good matchup. Um, and, and Wisconsin, Oshkosh, right now has got probably the most exciting player in the country. No disrespect to anybody else, but Nate Nate Ware has been the guy. Um, this year and the type of offense they run, you know, we both got a chance to watch the Oshkosh Whitewater game and, and, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of motion and, and, you know, throwing the ball downfield and, and misdirection runs. It's, it's fun stuff to watch. And I think a, another team that fits that bill that has a tough first round draw uh, is Washington and Lee. Going it's going to be kind of, that's a long trip from, from Lexington, Virginia to, uh, to the Finger Lakes area in New York. But, uh, Washington Lee has an offense that's tough to prepare for, but at the same time, Hobart has this great defense. So that's one of the matchups in the first round I'm looking forward to. And that's a little off the main radar. You know, again, we're talking about the popular teams, the the Mount Union, Mary Harden Baylor, St. Thomas, Wesley, all those teams. We got it. The, the week one sometimes is going to be the, uh, the, the ones that are a little bit off the radar that are kind of fun. Yeah, I know that... Um you know, obviously Washington Lee is going to go up there with a, an offense that is a little bit different, maybe than uh, than Springfield or different than Merchant Marine. But I know Hobart has seen uh, the option a couple times this year, and they've been tremendous on defense all season. It's really, you know, Mountain Union set the bar pretty high for the best defense in the country, but Hobart's not far behind. And if if you look at the teams in the postseason that are carried by defense. Uh, I guess Framingham State is another one, but I'm you know just you know scanning this list really quickly. There's a lot of teams just based on what they're known for this season. A lot of them are offense. There aren't there aren't uh, too many uh, you know defensive juggernauts. Obviously, teams that are ten and zero usually pretty good on on uh, offense, defense, and special teams. But I think we got some pretty uh, decent matchups. And when I say decent, I'm looking at it from a you know a I don't have a team in the game. And you can't call it, you know, Wittenberg, Heidelberg. I, I, you know, I pick Heidelberg. They're at home. I've kind of been picking them all year. But, you know, you know Wittenberg has been, except for losing to Wabash, which is no, no, nothing wrong with that. Uh, they, they've been good. So we're going we're gonna to have some games like that code. You know, that's a team that's kind of until these last few weeks here been forgotten among all the undefeated teams in the country. Uh, you know, Widener and Hobart, I think, couple teams out of the east and maybe you can add salisbury and, and rowan to this list teams from the east that that um you know technically salisbury's south region but actually uh, salisbury's east again she's they're east now um teams from the east that want to 
you know, that have a chance to prove something for the East. And, and we don't have to belabor this point, but, you know, it's 91 since a uh, East region team has won a Stag Bowl. 99 since one has been to the Stag Bowl. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's all. So, uh, you know, but you got some maybe legitimate contenders um, in in the sense that you got Mountain Union on one side and you don't have that big juggernaut on the other side. So that, that one side of the bracket is a little more wide open, although you still have five or six really, really great teams that are uh, angling to get to Salem. Adrian's another team, Keith, that really uh, added to its uh, playoff uh, fortunes or its prospects or bolstered its playoff chances on Saturday. Not the not their chances of getting into the field because they were already in the field, but you know their chances of sticking around a little bit. They went down to Huntington. Uh, they won at Huntington on the road. They had a, a big fourth quarter to come back and win. That gave them a win against a regionally ranked team that helped out their strength of schedule a little bit. And instead of, you know, playing somebody, um, you know, somebody who's pretty highly ranked in the first round, they get a home game against Franklin instead. And this is the reward of scheduling tough. That if yes. you, you win the tough game, now you got a home game in the playoffs. And Adrian could very well find itself back in the Deep South next weekend against the winner of Mary Harden Baylor at Louisiana College. So you, we go from a team that we were talking about, Pat, at the beginning of Week 11. Again, they're in the field, but they're playing to avoid you know, getting sent to Mount Union or sent to somewhere in the north where, where it's a nice short trip, but they're, they're going to get maybe one of the tougher draws in the field. And I think in this case, they got one of the easier draws. No disrespect, of course, to, to Franklin, who's kind of a tough team to figure out this year because they blew through the, the Heartland, but you know, got beat 45-7 by Mount Union. You throw out the result against Butler, because who knows what it means uh, playing a non-scholarship 1AA team. And I think the, the, the big takeaway from that for Adrian is, you know, you play, a, you play a tough non-conference game and you win that game. You know, you, you still got your chance at your AQ, but you win that game and it helps you in, in terms of getting a home playoff game. I don't know when the last time an MIAA team had a home playoff game was i'm sure trying and did it one time in their run there but it, that's a big deal for adrian absolutely and, and you're totally right about franklin i have no idea what to make of uh, of this team you know again as you said about butler who knows exactly what that means uh and so they played the number one team in division three and then they played you know a bunch of teams who probably aren't in the top 100 and you know losing 45 7 to mountain Union, what does that tell you almost everybody else lost right you know Mount Union. The closest game uh, was was the Heidelberg 33-14 game, and that game was close in the first half, 12-7 at halftime. Uh, maybe that tells us a little bit about Heidelberg as a team who's in this this foursome here. Uh, Heidelberg, Wittenberg in the first round against the winner of Hobart, Washington, and Lee. And that's like a, a one of those matchups where we get a chance in the playoffs to see teams who would never play each other play each other. And that's part of the reason why PLU and Linfield fans are disappointed with seeing each other again. And uh, Louisiana College and Mary Harden Baylor. Part of it is that you just want to see some different faces. And part of it, too, I think is conference pride. You want your your conference when it gets two teams in to be, have a chance at both of those teams advancing. Uh, and also, you know, your um, your Cinderella picks, so to speak, your, uh, your, your playoff picks going all the way back to August look pretty good this week with both Heidelberg and Elmhurst in the field. You were really early on those teams. Uh, you know, and, and Pat, that comes from this is this credit is going to go to a lot of people. Every all the writers that we have that do kick off file these uh, these these capsules have so much detail in them. 
And, you know, you and I spend nights in August reading all of them. And, you know, I, I comb through them looking for a specific kind of not whatever the opposite of a red flag is, you know, a, a, a blue flag, a, the trigger, something. A lot of starters back on the offensive line, uh, you know, a kind of special player, a team that's been on the rise the past few years. And I, I think, uh, you know, we got a good tip on, on Heidelberg, to be honest with you. When, yeah. when Germany Woods transferred to Mount Union, sat out the season, we thought, man, they, they lost their All-American running back, you know, in the summer. How are they ever going to recover from that? Well, Heidelberg is building something under Mike Hallett, and they have guys in the pipeline. Cartel Brooks stepped in and has been a you know, great lead runner for them, and then they have a, a kind of a, a second back in Brian Lacey who, who can come in and, uh, and change the pace. And, and they've needed Brian Lacey the last couple of weeks because uh, Brooks has been kind of banged up apparently. And, and the thing about Heidelberg that's kind of exciting if you're – a fan in that part of the country is that these guys are all young. The team is, you know, majority sophomores and juniors, the starting lineup. So, you know, even if they get bounced in the first round against Wittenberg, which I like, like I said before, I don't think that's, I think probably favor them in, in the first round, but it could happen. And, um, you know, even if they get bounced, they're not even supposed to be here yet. And, and they almost weren't. If you, if you go back to week 11, they had to block a uh, Baldwin Wallace field goal attempt on the, uh, on the last play of the game to, uh, to, to even survive. They had been pushed to eight and two. I don't think they had the the you know the numbers to get in. Often the uh, NCA seedings and the the home the way the home games are set up are kind of at odds with our uh, top twenty five poll. It hasn't uh, it doesn't happen a whole lot this year. Uh, there are only a couple of instances uh, where, for example, Concordia Chicago is at home. We don't rank them. But uh, number 21, Bethel, is ranked, and they go there. Uh, similarly, we've talked about Adrian Franklin already, but uh, Franklin is ranked number 16 in our poll and goes to Adrian, which is unranked uh, just outside our top 25 with the 26th most votes. Well, you know, another major top 25-related uh, development, I guess, in this thing, Pat, is you know the, the fact that Mary Harden Baylor and, and Mount Union are on the same side of the bracket. And I'm sure you are going to get to that at, at some point. And so I, I apologize if I'm jumping ahead. But, you know, the top, our top 25, as flattered as we are that, that it's taken as gospel, is not NCAA selection criteria. So if a team like Linfield grades out better on the things that are set out in advance before the first game is played, you know, winning percentage, strength of schedule, Results against regionally ranked opponents on down the line, and and Linfield grades out better than than Mount Union, then then Linfield is the number one seed in the in in the tournament. And if if number two is is Mary Harden Baylor and number three is Mount Union, then those two teams may have to meet in the semifinal instead of in Salem. I know there were some people who were who were jumping ahead in this thing and potentially thinking Mary Harden Baylor versus Mount Union would be a great stag bowl, and it would be a great game. It would be a great stag bowl. They've only played once. You know, Mary Harden Baylor's been to the Stag Bowl, and they and and to get there, they had they go up to Alliance and win, and that was a great game. And I, I think Mount Union is the only. I mean, Mary Harden Baylor is the only team, at least in the the Mount Union Larry Karras dominant taking the team to Salem every year era that has a winning record against Mount Union. So we'd love to see those two teams play again. But there's plenty of teams that haven't played Mount Union. Linfield um, hasn't played Mount Union ever along in all these runs. They played Whitewater. Um, so that would be, you know, another matchup. Uh, Wesley hasn't broken through to Salem. St. Thomas, you know, we were, we talked with Glenn Caruso down in Salem last year, and 
he was, you know, as disappointed as he was about losing the semifinal, getting the lay of the land in Salem in case he ever had a chance to bring a team back here. Well, now that door is wide open for St. Thomas. So I think even though the brackets um, aren't stacked the way our top 25 would have stacked them, I think there's still a lot of intriguing possibilities. And as we go forth here, uh, you know, especially when this thing narrows down to eight and then four, we're going to have a, a real, real competitive tournament. Right. We'll know at the end of the tournament where you know where it where it should have ended up but of course hindsight uh is 2020 or 25 25 or however you want to uh break it down in 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 a situation like that uh and, and often to be honest with you uh you know in the non whitewater era mountain union has kind of had its way with the bracket and had its had its way with salem other than um other than st john's games well and i think they have an opportunity to have their way with this bracket again they're 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 eight some. Hold up. The, the quarter, their quarter of the bracket, their region. They have again all the you know stacked with mostly east and and eastern based south region teams in their in their region. So if you don't respect the the power of the east, or if the east wants to earn that respect, somebody's got to beat Mount Union. That means Widener, Bridgewater State, Salisbury, Rowan, Johns Hopkins, Washington, Jefferson, or Christopher Newport. Somebody's got to beat them. And although Mount Union has been, I'm not going to say in previous seasons, I'll say last season, they were probably more beatable than they've been since 2004 when they, when they last did not go to the Stag Bowl. They were, they were beatable last season. The only team that beat them was, was Whitewater, but a lot, but, you know, seven point semifinal against Wesley. Wabash stayed close with them in the playoffs. Took them, took Mount Union a while to put center away in the second round last year. So though they were beatable last year, and and they haven't been very beatable this season. But they still don't have the the superstar talents like when they had Pierre Garcon and Nate Kamick and Greg McKaylee and Cecil Shorts and all these. I mean, they've got more of like a workhorse team now, and uh, that means everybody has to contribute for Mount Union. Everybody has to stay healthy, and they they've uh, they've got earn their their wins and by the same token i think for all these these east teams they're that that's an opportunity every week and you gotta have to play your best game and, and mountain union's got to play not their best game but every week is an opportunity you can't go out to alliance and play scared and uh you know you just take your best shot you've watched a lot more mountain union uh on video than i have um do you do you think that kevin burke is one of those uh is one of those talents or not yet He's, he's if he's not there now, he's getting there. I mean, you, you look at the numbers he put up on Saturday. I want, you know, six, seven, somehow some uh, some ridiculous stats. Um, you know, if if it were any week where I'd been reading all the game reports from week eleven instead of reading all the pool C projections, um, you know, I would know that off the top of my head. But yeah, I think Kevin Burke is over the course of this season. Uh, developed into a, a real dangerous threat for Mountain Union. He's a, a, a runner and passer. Uh, I think before you had me compare him to, to a previous Mountain Union quarterback and we said McKaylee, and I don't think that's maybe accurate. I think Zach Bruni might be a little more accurate because it's just you know, Burke's build. Um, you know, he throw, when he throws the ball, the, the way it comes out looks kind of looks weird at first because I think just because he's short. He's short. Uh, he might not even be six feet. And, uh, but he can play, man. He's a player. And uh, he, they, they've been dangerous on offense. You know, I watched a little bit of the beginning of the Baldwin-Wallace game uh, in, in week 10. And that was another game. Mountain Union scuffled a little bit for a quarter. And then you just start putting it together. And, and Burke's got some weapons in, uh, in Jasper Collins and Chris Denton. Um, they, they, they have kind of a running back by committee in the backfield. And then they have a great offensive line. And whenever those guys are playing well, 
it makes the job so much easier on the quarterback. And then on top of that, they score points on defense uh, and special teams. Of course, Week 12 is all about the playoffs. Week 11 was not all about the playoffs, though. In, in a lot of cases, uh, Week 11 is, uh, is an opportunity for big rivalry games, and a lot of them uh, are on that final weekend of the season, including one of them coming back to the final weekend where it belongs, and that's the Dutchman Shoes rivalry. That is the rivalry between Union and RPI, and Union... Um, really dominates this rivalry in the uh, in the long history of it, although RPI has, has come back lately. So I think that's one of the reasons why it may not be, uh, maybe we can't put it on the same level as, you know, Wabash DePauw and Cortland State Ithaca and Amherst Williams and Randolph Macon Hampton Sydney. But uh, it was certainly one for the ages on Saturday. Well, I think Randolph Macon Hampton Sydney is a good example of a rivalry that, that you know, has cycled through at some point where it was it was down for for years because you know Macon was really good and Hampton Sydney wasn't and then Hampton Sydney was really good and Randolph Macon wasn't and it's, it's come back in the past five years and and that that can happen in rivalries and I think that's the the kind of the neat thing about uh, the Dutchman Shoes game you know I think that's what makes the the Moan and Bell games the the, the if not the top rivalry, one of the top three in, in Division Three is because it's so competitive, usually. We'll get to that uh, in, in a minute here. But I, I'm a big proponent of playing that game in Week 11 and having gone through it, playing for Randolph-Macon. It, it just always keeps, your, you know, you're always playing for something, keeps your season, even if it's a quote-unquote lost season where, where you're not going to make the playoffs and you may be sub-500 or around 500. That last week, Everybody pours back on a campus. It's it's bigger than homecoming. It's a um, you know you talk to alumni, you see guys who played 50 years ago, guys who hadn't missed the you know had never missed a game in the history of every time it's been played. And you know when you start getting around that stuff, you just wanna you just wanna be the team that doesn't let everybody down. And uh, you know it helps you be focused that week in practice. And and for D3, when you get to you you know you play some games in front of 1,200 fans or something like that, and on a Friday night and the empty visitor stands because you know your rival is eight hours away, to be able to play a game at the end of the season where everybody's there, everybody cares about it, you got you know media attention, fans, and all that stuff. It really is a beautiful thing, and I'm glad uh, Union and RPI moved this game back to Week 11, and then you know on top of all that, they played a game. You know, that was worthy of all the hype. Absolutely a game in which uh, um, Union goes on and, and wins in overtime. They win 34-28 on a, uh, a play that will be, I'm sure, in our uh, Play of the Week uh, nomination uh, reel that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next couple of days. Um, you know, it's a these are two teams that in a lot of cases, you know, they've won some Liberty League titles. Uh, they've been you know, more or less out of the mix over the last couple of years. And I think also, too, um, RPI, just the way that things have gone for them over the last 18, 20 months. You know, they've cycled through so many head coaches, uh, some of whom, you know, never even coached a football game. It's just been nuts over there. And RPI, you know, it's probably a disappointing end of the season for them. But 5-4 and four is a lot better than we could have hoped for necessarily in some cases for them. Well, there's a there's a, a direct tie here. You go to the the other rivalry game in, in Indiana. The uh, you know DePaul has cycled through coaches in a way similar to RPI, and this is the year where it finally caught up to them. It hit them pretty hard, and uh, I believe they finished two and seven. And and you know, 
that's for a team that was, you know, winning or, or a threat to win the, uh, the SCAC title, you know, most years for, for a handful of years there, you know, having a bad season and not even scoring a point against your rival is, is tough. And so when you take a look at RPI through that prism, you say they, they put that, they took the game to overtime and, uh, you know, they, they gave their fans something to walk out of, uh, at East campus stadium with their heads held high about, you know, even though they didn't win the game, it was, it was worth again, you know, all that build up during the week and it was worth all the hype, you know, there's nothing like winning it. Don't get me wrong, but, 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 um, when you've had kind of a, a upheaval in your program and you're able to, to play your rival to the brink, I think, I think that does mean something. Yeah. And for DePauw, man, it did take them. It took them quite a long time for, for all those uh, coaching changes to catch up with them, but it seems like not much has gone right for them since they cut Matt Walker loose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he's somebody who, who's, who's resurfaced coaching elsewhere. And then, you know, DePauw, was the picture of stability for for a long time under Nick Morosis, and um, you know it was twenty three years I believe he was the coach, maybe longer than that, and um, then all of a you know all of a sudden they've they've gone through coaches they they uh, let Robbie Long go uh, earlier this season and and you know D three you don't see coaches get let go in season very often you don't or resign uh whatever the case may be you don't see it happen very often uh, if you do it's usually a bad situation and for DePaul you know playing in a conference where there's a lot of winnable games to be quite frank about the north coast it's it's tough to see them down but that's what the rivalry game is it's one more chance to be like we can we can Make all this go away if we could just win this game. And uh, instead, Wabash, which was, you know, had kind of blown its own playoff hopes the week before. And they were playing, you know, thinking they may have a chance at the playoffs, but mostly uh, just playing to, to continue dominating that rivalry game. The, uh, the Wabash seniors now um, go out winning the Moan and Bell four years in a row, which is um, fairly rare. In, in most rivalry games, you don't get a senior class that beat the rival four times in a row. And uh, I think it's happened a couple times in, in the Mona Bell history. But um, that's a big deal. Uh, and you love to be the one who comes back to, to uh, homecoming or some reunion and say, oh, psh, we never lost to those guys, you know. Cortica Jug was another great game. Uh, Cortland State, you know, is, a, is in a situation where they had already clinched their playoff spot and they were really playing for seeding, perhaps playing for a home game. And they needed a a goal line stand in the final minute to uh, to win that game. Now they've won the Cortica Jug three years in a row. And Cortland State, you know, you figure how their vantage point on the bracket might have changed if they'd lost that game. They get a home game against Framingham State, whereas otherwise, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure where uh, they might have gone. Uh, they might have maybe had to go to Johns Hopkins or something like that, or or or, or hosted a better team. Uh, they end up with a pretty decent first round draw. Yeah, I mean, being able to play a home game is a big deal. Cortland State is 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 a stadium that it, it it's not going to compare to anything Framingham State's seen all, all season. I mean, just that's a palace up there that that Cortland State place compared to to you know your D three stadiums in, in the Nessie. You know, you you see stadiums in New England sometimes uh, in a residential neighborhood. You know, it's just a field surrounded by a fence, and, and so it's going to be a big deal for for Framingham State and and to go up there and play that game. And you're right, Pat, uh, th- that goal line stand meant so much when you when you consider um, beating Ithaca 
just the satisfaction of all the alumni get a, get a chance to, to to chirp all year about that, and then also securing a home playoff game and securing one against an opponent that we believe. It, I'm speaking for you here, but we believe they should they should be they should win that game. I think that's a fair assessment. Certainly, the uh, top 25 poll believes they would win that game, and tend to subscribe to our top 25 poll because because you know it's our top 25 poll, and that's what it's there for. Uh, Amherst Williams, another uh, another great game at, um, between these two teams, and, and Williams has really been really been struggling the last couple of years. It, it happens though. Uh, every great program cycles down every now and again, and um, you know Amherst is certainly not going to feel sorry for them. This is their year to take advantage and and, and twist the knife a little bit, and I, it wasn't an easy win for them. But I, I thought the this was maybe. The first year since I've been doing this when the Trinity Wesleyan game was almost as big as the Amherst Williams game. Now there's no game that's been played longer than Amherst Williams, so in a sense that's always gonna be the biggest little game. Um, which I think is is their tagline and somebody else's tagline as well, but whatever. Yeah. But Trinity, uh, you know, I we gotta give a, a quick hat tip to them on the um podcast for finishing eight and oh again. Uh, undefeated season and and did it by beating their rival who was actually decent this year Wesley and finishes five and three I think uh, also kudos as long as we're in the NESCAC to Bates uh, how long has it been since Bates had a had a winning record yeah and I think Bates was the first team that kind of put us on to Williams was going to have a rough season you know That's we true they lost to Bates, and that was also the week that that Bates had a, a, a accident on their campus where where a player died, and so we you know we were paying attention to to them for off the field reasons, and then you know you see them um, you know scoring upsets and, uh, and and having what turns out to be a se- a great season. I think that's what sometimes is so um, unpredictable about the NESCAC is there's just no way to compare anything, you know early in the season or year to year it's just it's it's in a, in a lot of ways it's a crapshoot every season you know the same teams tend to be at the top but you don't know which one's going to win you don't know which team's going to rise up from two and six to five and three the next year it's uh yeah, it's a fun little conference to follow too bad they they can't hang out with us in week 12 and beyond but we'll have a good time either way in uh in the frame of mind of answering my own question the last time Bates had a winning record was 1981 when they went six and two. Uh, that was a uh, that was a year before that was in a, a time before they uh, the the NESCAC went insular because they played WPI that year and, and beat them 15 to 11, and the rest of the games were against uh, NESCAC opponents. And it has been a long time. The last time uh, Bates was even 500 was back in 1999. So it's been a long time coming for the Bobcats. Yeah, and, and you see teams cycle up. You know, n- nothing lasts forever, and sometimes a down program gets a gets a up coach, a guy who's exciting, brings a lot of energy to the table. And and you know, if we're gonna go back uh, over to the playoff field, they, there's at least one example of that. I think a team that was you know legendarily, maybe not legendarily bad, but they were very bad for for a very long time, and uh, and cycled up. And there, you know, there's some other programs. I think when you go down this list that it, that had some uh, had some tough years, and uh, are now, you know, Wisconsin Oshkosh is another one that really almost I think never had YAC success. You know, it was maybe two times since the mid '70s that they'd finished at the top of the conference, and this year, you know, blew away the field. So Sometimes, you know, getting the first taste of the playoffs, 
Louisiana College is another one that has not been a bad program. That's a team that just um, had been on the cusp, knocking on the door, knocking on the door, and finally broke through this year. You know, the great thing about D3 season to season is there's so many teams, and that means there's so many stories, so many teams who, who uh, get a chance to cycle up and, and, and um, you know, take part in the playoffs. Yeah, uh, we are going to do... Uh, several other features this week that have predictions in them. We will be uh, Keith's around the nation column will be our surprises, upsets, and disappointments uh, annual column where we look at each bracket. We pick uh, teams who are going to surprise and it's a teams who are going to be disappointments. Well, it, it's probably pretty self-explanatory. And then on uh, Friday in Triple Take, we will do uh, something we started uh, several years ago where we actually predict the score of each game. And that is not to say necessarily here's a, here's a point spread in this game, but more to give you an idea of this is what the kind of style of the game might be like. Is it going to be a close game? Is it going to be uh, is it going to be a blowout? Is it going to be a high scoring game? Is it going to be a low scoring game? Those are the kind of things that we're looking through there. So we're not going to do a whole ton of predictions here in this podcast, but you know, obviously, Keith, there are a bunch of teams. Um, you know, in the top five or six, uh, there's there's three top six teams on each side of this bracket, uh, which I think are all reasonable, uh, you know, picks to perhaps see playing in December. But do you think there's anybody who's not in that grouping that might uh, that might advance a couple rounds? No, Pat, this actually is a really balanced bracket. If you look at this in terms of foursomes in each you know group of four, there's a f- undefeated team fairly dominant team you, you got a group before with linfield in it one with oshkosh uh another one with st thomas mary harden baylor wesley you know not undefeated but but you know consensus top six team i think in the country and you got another quadrant with uh with mount union in it i think that so there, there's two right now that I, that you're looking for you know maybe an upset and a team to make a little bit of a run i, I like heidelberg in the in the group with uh, with Hobart, Washington, Lee, Wittenberg, I think that's the that's maybe the best foursome in that any of those teams could win in advance. And uh, you know, I know it's a little bit of a stretch for Washington and Lee, but with that offense, who knows? You know, uh, Hobart could win three games, Heidelberg could win three games. You know, I, I think that's one of the, the that group of four is a is a fun group to look at. And then I think the other one is the the Widener, Bridgewater State, Salisbury, Rowan group, where you just you know Widener certainly has put up points. I think they're the number one offense in the country. Uh, that Either them or Sol Ross State, you know, one is maybe his yards and the other one is points. But, you know, Widener is putting up points at a ridiculous clip. But at the same time, not very many games against teams, the, the caliber of Salisbury, caliber of Rowan. And yet both of those two teams have shown a, um, you know, have, have had their ups and downs this season. So I think, uh, you know, Widener may be a team that we could see win a couple games and go out to Mount Union and, and play a, a, a that'd be a matchup that's been played before. Widener's actually, you know, faced Mount Union in, in the past uh, when it's had a high powered offense and, uh, and and didn't fare so well. But I think those are the the, you know, if you look if you break this bracket down in groups of four, I think you you see maybe a Heidelberg win two or three games or a Hobart which, which obviously the Hobart's a little more expected and then maybe Salisbury or Rowan surprises Widener and then moves on uh, until it can play Mount Union. I think if I had pondered this question and had this bracket in front of me three weeks ago, I probably would have uh, uh, talked about Cal Lutheran at this point. But you know, Cal Lutheran has just has has looked pretty vulnerable the last few weeks. They've uh, they've given up a lot of points, especially in the you know late in games and that sort of thing, or in the second half of games. You know, games where 
you know, they, they jump out to a big lead and you think they have it all put away and then, you know, it, it ends up 62-35 instead of 56-7. I, you know, style points don't necessarily count, but when you're talking about, you know, proving whether a team can go deep into the playoffs or pull off a couple upsets and, and beat a team that it's lost to a couple times in a row now, I think that's something that uh, that's something that makes a difference. I'm a little down on Cal Lutheran right now. And it's weird. You know, I actually moved them down a couple spots this week too. So although, did I. I, you know, I moved I moved Heidelberg down too, and that's a team that had been constantly moving up. But you know, when you when you get in by blocking a field goal, or when you you give up a bunch of points, you kind of get lackluster late in the game. Um, you know, although in Cal Lutheran's case, you know, they had the rally to beat Chapman, and Chapman was a pretty good team in the Sky Act this year. But yeah, you look at them in the context of that group, and and there's Linfield and Pacific Lutheran. And plays a winner at Cal Lutheran in North Central, and that's a tough. That's a tough foursome right there. I mean, you know, you could. You got to remember this: the first Linfield Pacific Luther, Lutheran game was a seven-point game. Even though Linfield is the dominant team, the number one seed in the whole thing, we could see an upset somewhere in this bracket. And you know, maybe it's North Central beating Cal Lutheran and then beating Linfield, or maybe it's you know somewhere else down the bracket uh, where the where the upset comes. You know whether it's a Wesley or, or or you know somebody ran you know shocking Mount Union or or a shocking St. Thomas in their bracket. Yeah, I mean I'd like to think about Bethel too, but if Bethel can't handle the kind of mobile quarterback that Matt O'Connell is at St. Thomas, I I, I really wonder what they would do against uh, Nate Ware of Wisconsin Oshkosh. So I almost want to say there may not be a team outside the top six that uh, you know that advances you know that deep into the bracket, but. Of course, it is uh, it is kind of a, a stacked situation. Um, what's the one game on Saturday that you'd like to be at if you could be there? Uh, I mean, we just touched on two games that I'm that I'm fond of, and I, I wanted to see if I could maybe pick a different one. Uh, I think Cal Lutheran North Central. That's that's a toss up game where you just you have. I just don't have any idea which teams are going to win that game. I'll be totally honest with you. North Central has been dominant at times, and then they've been they look not so good. I watched the Wheaton game, and, and you know Wheaton was kind of shoving the ball down their throats at some point, and that's what North Central usually does. They usually you know run it you know for 200, 300 yards on teams. Um, that would be a great one to be at. Uh, I think if if you made me pick, you know, I mentioned the Heidelberg Wittenberg a couple of times. I think if you made me pick, how about Co uh, Elmhurst at Co? No, you can't have that. I'm going to pick that one. Okay, then I'll take another one. I'm gonna. I don't think I can get down there uh, to Cedar Rapids, but that's a game that uh, that seems really intriguing because, it, you know, those are a couple of teams that have, uh, you know, not as much playoff history, especially Elmhurst, um, and and so Elmhurst without the playoff history and and Co without you know a real test in Division Three so far this season. I, I think I look for in the first round games that you don't know off top who's going to win. And I've said the good good things about Washington and Lee, their chances at Hobart. Uh, Hobart's really, really good on defense. So I don't know if WNL is going to have the success running the ball that they always have. But um, you look for games like that. You look for the Adrian Franklin game where you're like, mm, maybe this is a chance for either the Heartland or the MIAA to advance uh, into the second round. You may end up at Mary Harden Baylor and it may not be so pretty in the second round. But you have a chance. Um, how about Salisbury Rowan? That, that's an, that's one that I could actually physically get to and uh, and talk about that one. And that's a, that that's a, um, an, another couple teams where you just, you don't know. I don't know what I'm going to get every week from from Salisbury. You know they've been they were incredible against Utica. They struggled to to hold on and beat Alfred. Uh, you know they they had, had some great games. 
and have some not so great games. You know that that highlight at the end of the Ithaca game that, that we got a great view of. Um, you know they didn't look like they were they were awful competitive in the secondary. You know trying to stop uh, Joe and Grayo at the end of that Ithaca game, and and you project down the line, you're going to have to you know play great defense against uh, against you know a Widener if you play them in the second round. I mean. So that would be a fun game to be at in the first round. I think, Pat, as we go down the line, if I want to answer that question, um, you know, many different ways. There are probably about six games in the first round where you're really just like, I'm not quite sure who's going to win. And those are the ones that, that intrigue me the most in round one. So it should be a great first round of the playoffs. Uh, coming up on Saturday, uh, some of the basics for those of you who are new to the playoffs there's a whole lot of things that are different about than uh, the regular season. First of all, uh, all your games are going to be at noon uh, through the first second, first round, second round, and the national quarterfinals. Uh, semifinals, uh, the kickoff time was dictated by TV last year, and I haven't heard anything different uh, about that this year. I suspect that will probably still happen. And the Stag Bowl is on Friday night, 7 p.m., December 14th, in Salem, Virginia. Um so you've got the uh, you've got the noon kickoff. That's a NCA mandated uh, policy. Uh, secondly, um, your uh, playoff roster is 58 players. That's an improvement last year or this year over last year. In previous years, it had been 52. Before that, it had been 48. So uh, you know a handful of more uh, players will get a chance to uh, to suit up and and play. And, and I think too, Keith, I think this uh, actually changes the dynamic a little bit because so often we've seen in the playoffs. Um, you know, you have starters basically, and uh, guys off your two deep participating on special teams who don't uh, who don't necessarily do special teams full time because you don't have the ability to carry you know a, a bunch of extra guys on the roster. And you know, this year that changes a little bit. Yeah, those last six you bring are, are the type of guys that are going to um, you know make a difference for you. If you lose a reserve, you know, linebacker or safety or something like that, that guy's going to be already on your roster because he's good at special teams. And then, you know, you may not have that quite that, quite that drop off. Those last six guys, you know, to to the fans, for, for us from far away, we may not care that much about it. But the coaches, uh, they're probably agonizing over those six guys they have until before 10 minutes before kickoff to uh, to pick um which guys are, are, are active and not active. Uh, although if you're traveling, you know, you, you only probably bring in your 58 on, at least on a plane. Um, but, but, you know, if you're at home, I think you have, you have until 10 minutes before kickoff to decide who those last guys are. So if you have an injury situation, a guy, it's a game time decision. Uh, you, you, at least you don't get stuck uh, losing that guy. And then you can't replace him with somebody that to take his place. And uh, like the, MLB playoffs, for example, you can change that 58-man roster between rounds. Uh, so, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the teams can kind of mix and match if necessary. You know, nobody has to make a decision if they want to carry the if they want to carry a third kicker, they want to carry a kickoff specialist. It's a lot easier to make that decision now than it would have been last year, or especially five or six years ago. So, uh, it definitely opens up some opportunities. I'm trying to think of. Other things that would uh, be of interest to fans, you know, for example, in the playoffs, um, a, a team can't charge pay-per-view for its streaming video. So if you were uh, accustomed to uh, having to pay to see a, a certain team's video now, they have to provide that for free or not provide it at all. And basically, there are going to be so few games coming up uh, this week and in future weeks that do not have streaming video. Uh, that's going to be the... Uh, I would say of the 31 games that we're going to have in this bracket, I would say probably 25 or 26 of them 
we'll have streaming video, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff out there to watch. Anything else uh, playoff wise that uh, you know first time fans need to know? Now, not off the top of my head, Pat. I mean, when we get you know to the stag bowl, we'll talk about replay. Uh, we get the semifinals. Maybe we'll even uh, talk about having the you know the uh, having it you know video on the premises, but you don't have to worry about that in the first round. I, I think the major thing right now is is just a, a, so many different styles of play, so many different schools. Some of them are you know playoff every year, and some of them for the first time. And that's what's uh, what's kind of neat if you're watching from afar. Of course, you're most interested in your own team's game and who your own team might play down the line. But there's there's uh, for those of us who don't have a team in it or or whatever, um, yeah. You know, I don't know if there's a particular rule that I want to point out, but I think there there's a lot that's cool about this this first week of the playoffs. And, and you mentioned everything starting at twelve o'clock uh, Central Time, be one o'clock, and it'll just come all in a wave. And uh, Saturday should be a lot of fun. You know, if you're wondering who's going to host uh, games in the next round, because there aren't seeds on the bracket, we never really know for sure. Um, you know, some years they have sworn to us that oh, we don't know until we won't know until Sunday. But to be honest with you, most of the most of the times we know by the end of the game Saturday or shortly after the game Saturday uh, who will host out of that matchup the next week. So keep an eye out on d3football.com for updates to the bracket for future weeks. Obviously, uh, they don't ever change pairings, but uh, you know we obviously keep an eye out for who is going to be hosting next week, especially next week with Thanksgiving and uh, vacation and time off and travel being a, a little bit uh, more difficult, shall we say, if you're... Uh, you know, using one of those airport thingies. Um, the rest of the week, we still have all of our uh, normal features. We will have, uh, the, of course, this podcast. I don't know if you've heard about it. Uh, we will do the D3Football.com Play of the Week. Uh, we'll have the post-game show where we have your D3 reports and team highlight packages. We will have Around the Region columns this week, and then we will have uh, continuing playoff features in future weeks. Uh, mentioned Keith's Around the Nation column. Uh, we will have, uh, I may have already said play of the week, but it's really important. We're gonna, I'm going to mention it again. We'll do uh, a final team of the week. That's our weekly honor roll sponsored by Scoutware. And then for those of you who are sports information directors out there, uh, nominations are officially open for the D3Football.com All-Region team, and All-Region nominations funnel up into All-Americans. So you'll be getting an email about that on Monday. And I'm putting that on my to-do list. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And we, of course, will announce the All-American team in the pregame show at Salem at Stag Bowl 40 on December 14th. And that's the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 12, 2012, sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com. He's Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman, and that's the Around the Nation podcast.